Let's look at our scripture, which can be found in 1 Thessalonians. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And as I started preparing for this message, I realized that I couldn't get past 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. So this is going to be at least a two-part, and I'm only going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, because that's really all that we're going to be, I'm going to be preaching on. I'm also going to be touching on Colossians 1, which is what was read during the praying the scripture time. So this is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. Finally then, brothers, Paul says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I'm going to read it again since it's so short. Finally then, brothers, in other words, finally then you and me, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. This is God's word. Sometimes you want to stop and take stock of your life. And uh, during this crisis, it's a good opportunity to stop as you're forced to stop and examine and ask yourself the question, what difference does my life make? Why am I here? And is this really doing anything? Am I really making an impact on anyone in this life? Many of us, we live a, a routine existence. We get up, you may go to a job outside or inside the home. You work your time, you come home, and you have the variety of routines that you participate in again and again, and they're almost in some ways like ruts in our life. We fall into these particular ruts, and life happens again and again. The sun rises, the sun sets, and we have to ask the question, what difference does my life make in the larger scheme of things? I mean, after all, I'm an insignificant speck in many ways in the larger scheme of creation and all that exists. What's amazing about this verse and this passage is that we discover that our life does make a difference, that our life does have impact at the highest level. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received, how you ought to walk and to please God. In other words, the actions that you and I partake in, whether considered sacred or secular, have the power within them to bring a smile to the face of the one who created and sustains the universe. There are things that we can do to move the heart of God, to bring pleasure to the one who made the cosmos. Now, I may get some pushback from people about uh, this passage. Isn't it true that there's nothing that I can do to make him love me any more or any less? And the answer to that is that is true. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any more or any less. But we're not talking about love. We're talking about pleasing God. And they're not exactly the same. See, the love that God has for you as a believer, if indeed you are a follower of Jesus Christ, comes from who he is. It's his desire to set his affection and love on you and to call you his own. But the pleasure he receives comes from how we choose to live in his love. You see, grace is bound up in the heart of God. But pleasure is bound up in your and my actions toward God. So within this, there is an opportunity 
and a responsibility that we have. For we were designed to bring a smile to the face of God. We were designed to bring pleasure to Him. And it would appear that through Christ, we now have the capacity to do so, even in the ordinary and humdrum ways that we live out our life. I think the church has lost this truth. In our efforts to defend grace, we have abandoned our responsibility, indeed our opportunity to live in a way that pleases God. And Christianity is the worst for it. There are many who would say that Christians don't live in a way that, that's that different from the world. But if Christianity claims to create a changed life, then surely the world can expect a different lifestyle from Christians. So we have a responsibility and an opportunity to live in a way that pleases God because the path to pleasure is found in pleasing God. I'll say it again. The path to pleasure is found in pleasing God. We're going to look at three specific points in my sermon because that's what we always do. Number one, we're going to look at the question of pleasing God. Is this true that we can actually please God? Number two, we're going to look at this principle of living, the guiding principle of living a life to please God. And then finally, we're going to look at some methods that the scriptures give us of pleasing God. So the question of pleasing God, the principle of pleasing God, and the methods of pleasing God. So let's begin with point number one, the question of pleasing God. Can we please God? And I start with the good Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther, who was on his way to becoming an attorney, and he found himself in a storm, and it was such a horrible storm that he made this promise, God, if you just allow me to survive, I will become a monk and I will serve you for the rest of my life. And sure enough, Martin somehow made it out of the storm and he became a scholar and a monk. And he embarked on this journey to please God. Or, I should say, to be found right with God. Not really to please God, because his relationship with God was characterized not by pleasure, but by fear. He would, he would do, embark on all of these crazy antics to try to prove to God that he was worthy of his love. You can go to Rome, I think, and, and where they've moved the steps that they would show him climbing up on his bloodied knees to try to prove to God that he was pious enough to merit his love. And then as he was preparing a Bible study, and he looked at Romans 1, 16 through 17, he read, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Martin Luther, for the first time in his religious life, experienced freedom. That this passage communicates that God is pleased with us simply because of who we are. Simply by believing this truth. Justification by faith is what we call it. And Martin Luther's life took on a new dynamic. But all too often as Christians, we stop there at justification by faith. Christianity's culmination is not in justification by faith, but rather it's in adoption. God's plan all along in bringing sinners back to himself has been to adopt them as children, as part of the family of God. It's really what it means to be born again, right? Born again into what? 
born again into the family of God. Yet to all who believed him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. I don't know if you have children, you remember that first time that you saw your child as they magically appeared from the womb. I remember after a nice 28-hour labor with my first child when I saw that wrinkly Martian-looking child. And I stared at them, and all I could feel was love. The child hadn't done anything, just sat there crying, whining, looking all wrinkly. And yet I loved him so much because he was mine. I was pleased with this child before he had done anything. And why is that? Because he was mine. In the same way, that's how God feels about the Christian who comes to faith, who is born again, a wrinkly Martian-looking creature, yet to God, beautiful. And God sets his affection on them and has an eternal pleasure of them simply because of who they are. But this relationship that has begun between God and man is dynamic, isn't it? It goes both ways. Much like a child begins to mature. Do you remember the first time that your little child, if you have a child, brought you a flower? Or drew you a picture and said, I just want you to have this. And it was this ridiculous looking thing. And yet it was an offering of love. Do you remember the first time that they returned your love of their own volition? The amount of pleasure that you felt. There was already the pleasure of them being yours, but there's an extended pleasure, if you will, of a love returned. Maybe not just in seeing the love that they had and gave to you, but do you remember the first time that they lived out the family principles? The first time when they were playing with a bunch of children and one child took a toy from another and, that, and your child intervened to help put that child back or to soothe someone and the amount of pleasure that you felt in seeing your child live out the family rules. See, there's a love that I have for my children that is inherent in who they are and it cannot be altered by them, whatever it is they do, whatever it is they do. But there is also a pleasure I have that is tied to how they live. It's tied to the decisions that they make. It's the same way with God. Why would we think it would be any different with our Heavenly Father? Grace is all about God's love for us. But how we choose to live in that grace is all about our love for Him. And God, our God who has brought us into the family, has family rules just as much as your family has family rules. It's called the moral law of God. We also call it the Ten Commandments and how they're expanded in the New Testament. What parent doesn't have standards for their child? Family rules. And when we choose to obey the family rules of God, we bring a smile to God's face. See, God examines us and He examines our behavior. And the way that we behave can bring pleasure to God. This word pleasure or to please God as we see here in, verse, uh, four, in chapter 4, verse 1. Oresco is the Greek word. It means to excite emotion. Literally means to move, move the heart, if you will. 
And so we are counseled here to walk in such a way as to excite emotion in God by responding and living in such a way that lives out our love back to Him. I remember the time when one of my children did something wrong. I know that's surprising to many of you, but it's true, it happens. And it was one of those things that was really wrong. You know, there's kind of wrongs and then there's really wrongs. This was a really wrong. And it's when your children do really wrong that it really, really counts how you respond. Because one of the questions those children are going to have when you really break one of the family rules is this. Do you still love me? Can I lose your love? Can I lose your favor for something like this? And I knew it was important to communicate the truth so that they would know. And so I went and I sat down with that child and I said, I am always pleased with you. What's your last name? It's Rodriguez. It'll always be Rodriguez. You're mine. And because you're mine, I'm always pleased with you. But I'm not always pleased with the things that you do. And this, you know better. And they did. I wanted to make a distinction between his being and his actions. And that's really what this is all about. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been adopted into his family, and there's nothing you can do to earn his love anymore because it's not even tied up in you. It's tied up in his heart. But you are now part of his family. It means you're never alone. There's no only children in the family of God. And you and I have a responsibility to live out the family rules of God's moral law. But it's more than simply a responsibility. It's an opportunity. Much like a little child saying, I want to live this way because I want to bring a smile to your face. Much like when a child does something and what do they do? They immediately look back at their parent to say, did you see that? I did this for you. And we see the smile that is on their face. See, we must move on from an elementary understanding of grace to more mature and deeper things. Because grace demands a response. If God has given you and I a special place in his heart to bring joy, he's also given us a special place in his heart to wound. Has he not? What parent does not grieve when their children purposely go astray. I guess that's why the Scriptures counsel us to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, we have an opportunity, my friends, to please God, to move and excite the heart of God in how we live. So let's do so, because the path to pleasure is found in pleasing God. This brings me to my second point, the principle of pleasing God. I want to suggest to you that thinking about your Christian life in terms of pleasing God is the guiding principle of balanced Christian behavior. I'll say it again. Thinking and using this principle of pleasing God is the guiding principle of balanced Christian behavior. This was how Jesus acted, right? Remember John 8, 29? The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came into the world and walked by faith as a man. 
But his guiding principle was the pleasure of his heavenly Father. And so, as Jesus let this principle guide his life, we should too. I think there are a couple of points I want to make about this principle. Number one, it's a radical principle. It's a radical principle. See, I cannot claim to follow him if I do not seek to please him. Right? They're bound up with one another. To say that I'm going to follow someone is I'm going to live for their pleasure. Their, their, uh, their feelings are superior to mine. I'm putting him first. No, son would say, I, lo- I love my father. I choose to obey him. I just don't really want to please him. No, they're bound up. And so it forces me to ask the question, as I live out my humdrum day-to-day life, who am I trying to please? The answer is I'm probably trying to please a lot of people. But as I go to work, who am I trying to please above all? This principle tells us that it's God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. As I go to school, and I have my assignments, and I sit through my classes, many that can be boring at times, who am I trying to please? As I go out on a date with someone else, I can ask the question, am I trying to please God? Am I trying to bring a smile to God's face? Or do I have other motives? You can even apply it when you come to church, right? What's the reason that I've come here? Just to check off a box? Make sure I'm seen as a responsible member of the community, that I have a religious component to my life? Or I came because I wanted to meet with God, and I wanted to sing to Him, and I wanted to bring a smile to His face. It's a radical principle. But it's a wonderful principle because you only have to worry about one master. Isn't that the problem with life? Too many masters. I go here and I have to please this person and I have to please this person and I have to please this God and I have to please this one. No, let's narrow it down to just one God in our life. It's a radical principle. But it's not only a radical principle, this principle of pleasing God, it's also a personal principle. It saves us from Phariseeism and legalism. For many of us, our Christianity is a long list of do's and don'ts. I'm supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this. And we begin and we start counting off, check that box, uncheck that box, again and again and again. But you see, this principle shifts things, doesn't it? The emphasis is not on keeping the law anymore, but on pleasing the lawgiver. The emphasis is not on keeping the law, but pleasing the the lawgiver. There's no pleasure in just keeping the law for the law's sake, is there? I don't want to simply obey a code again and again and again. I'm doing it for a greater purpose because it brings a smile to God's face. See, when we have the attitude and mentality of, I want to please the one who gave me the law, everything changes. Everything And that thing that God says to do that seems very hard, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And you know why? Because of what he did for me. And because I trust him. 
and because I know it brings a smile to his face. And you know what? The path to pleasure is found in pleasing God. If you want to find a life filled with pleasure, it comes not with pleasing yourself or pleasing anyone else before pleasing God. See, this is a personal relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. This principle draws us to Him. It builds relationship and ties of affection and communication between God our Father and ourselves, between God the Son, our Savior, and ourselves. Yes, it's a personal principle, it's a radical principle, and finally, it's an eternal principle. You never reach the end of it, do you? You never arrive until you're dead because we're always living. And life constantly presents opportunities, doesn't it? Forks in the road. There is no difference between the sacred and the secular, whether you're shopping for groceries or you're praying on your knees. Who am I doing it for and how am I doing it? We're always living and that's what makes this exciting, doesn't it? You know, if you remember Brother Lawrence, that monk in the 15th century who I believe Nacho, uh, Ignacio from Nacho Libre was modeled after. He wasn't smart enough to lead the liturgy, so they put him in the kitchen as a cook. And in the beginning, he was like, I can't do anything for God here. But as he realized that what was the most important thing was to please God, every single dish that he washed, every single uh, dish that he prepared, he realized this could be my gift and my offering to God. And what a place of love it must have been. And all of these intelligent people, his whole book is everybody coming and writing to this monk, Brother Lawrence, asking how to live a holy life. The guy in the kitchen. Heard this story about a boy who was being controlled, cajoled by his friends to throw a rock uh, at a car, uh, at a car window. And his friends were saying, go ahead and do it. We dare you. Boy said, I'm not going to do it. And they said, well, you're chicken. The boy said, no, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to throw that rock. I'm just not going to do it. Well, you're afraid of your father and what he will do to you if he finds out that you've thrown this rock. And the boy said, I'm not afraid of what he will do to me. I'm afraid of what this action might do to him. And that's why I'm not going to do it. See, that boy wanted to please his father. And it provided him with an internal compass of how to live out his life. I'm not afraid of what he's going to do to me. I'm afraid of what it's going to do to him. That is the perspective that this passage is giving us to love our Father. So my encouragement and exhortation and challenge to you is to make it also the principle guiding principle in your life. Get rid of your other masters. What are they? Power, Money, approval, sex. They never smile. They're never pleased because they're not alive. There is no pleasure to be found in pleasing them. 
Because the only pleasure to be found, true pleasure, is in pleasing God. Teenager, if you're listening to me preaching right now, if you make a decision, if you make a covenant with yourself and with God, you know what? I'm going to make this the guiding principle of my life, to please God. In my relationships with my friends, when I try out for that sports team, when I go on that date with that girl or that guy, if you make this your number one commitment, you're going to have a great life. College student, every time you go out on a date, when you get that first job offer, when you make that decision, I'll live for the pleasure of God, for putting a smile on His face. Above all, you'll be living a significant life because the path to pleasure is found in pleasing God. That brings me to my final point, the methods of pleasing God. The Bible is extremely practical because God has made known to us His will. You know, we're going to go from 1 Thessalonians 4.1 and we're going to go into this section here that deals with lust and deals with sex. Well, that's important. But the reason it's important is because of the impact that it has on the one who is your God. And so the, we're going to look at sex, we're going to look at work, we're going to look at how to deal with the challenges when someone that we know uh, uh, passes away. But all of these things are practical for helping us to know how to deal with the ultimate question, which is how to please God. I want to go back to Colossians 1, 9 and 10, which is what was read during praying the scriptures, because it gives us some of the methods that God has revealed to us for pleasing God. It says, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here are four different methods that this passage tells us about how to please God. Number one, fruitful living. Fruitful living. It says here, bearing fruit in every good work. See, this is the truth, my friends. Our lives are bearing fruit. In our relationships with people, in our conversations with them, in the work that we're producing, our work, our lives are bearing fruit. And what pleases God is fruitful living. What kind of fruit is he talking about here? He's talking about that spiritual fruit, right? He's talking about having love in your hearts, living at peace with one another, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you bear this type of fruit, it brings pleasure to the face of God. Now we know that there is a dependence on God for this, right? This is why the Father sent us Jesus Christ, who said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, in other words, dependent in me, walking in me, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How fruitful is your life? 
as you examine your conduct at work or at school or at home. When you seek to bear fruit in every good work, it brings a smile to God's face. Whether you're five years old or whether you're 80 years old, whether it's the decision of your life or one of a thousand little decisions, it doesn't matter to God. Fruitful living brings a smile to God's face. Number two, knowledgeable living. Verse 9, it says, filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. What's he talking about knowledge of His will? The Colossian church was dealing with the issue of Gnosticism. And I don't have a lot of time to go into that, rather to say that there was a group of people that said if you have this spiritual knowledge, this secret understanding, if you will, this secret mystery, then you have life figured all out. Paul is saying, no, that's not the knowledge I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a relational knowledge. Talking about is seeking to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. What I'm talking about is like Paul that said, I consider everything else rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When you seek to know God, when you close your door, when you pray to Him, when you say, I want to know you, I want to tell you about my life, and I want to learn more about you, it pleases God. It's a method of bringing a smile to God's face. Fruitful living, knowledgeable living, powerful living. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. When you say to God, use me, I want to be used by you with your power for doing your work. And notice it says that this work, this power is for all endurance and patience with joy. We think of power and we think of massive strength and we think of making a huge impact in the world. But the power he's talking about here is endurance and patience. Staying the course. Loving God. Some of our older saints in our congregation here are some of the most powerful people that I know because they have endurance and patience. They're powerfully living and when God sees that, it brings a smile to his face. And finally, thankful living. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. When you give thanks to the Father, when you remember what he has done in Jesus Christ for you, when you recognize that every good and perfect gift is from the Heavenly Father, in which there is no shadow or turning, when you realize that even the hard things that God allows to happen to us, that all things are working for the good of Him who called us according to His good purpose, and you give thanks, it brings a smile to God's face. The question of pleasing God, can we do it? Absolutely. We can move the heart of God in how we choose to live. The principle is a good one upon which to base your life. Make your decision that the path to my pleasure in my life is going to be found in pleasing Him above all. 
And let me do that through fruitful living, knowledgeable living, powerful living, and thankful living. For if you do so, you will find significance regardless of what the world says. What does it know anyways? It's only one opinion that matters in the end. Your heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. For the path to pleasure is found in pleasing God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you've given a place in your heart where we can move you in how we choose to live. God, help us to stop playing around and wasting our time trying to please these other so-called gods that have no life and give no life, but rather let the path to pleasure that we have in our lives be found in bringing a smile to your face. Above all, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.